2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 1 to 18. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, according to the promise of that life that is in Christ Jesus. To Timothy, my dear son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God, whom I serve as my forefathers did, with a clear conscience, as day and night I constantly remember you in my prayers. Recalling your tears, I long to see you so that I may be filled with joy. I have been reminded of your sincere faith, which first lived in your grandmother, Louis, and in your mother, Eunice, and I am persuaded now lives in you also. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on by, of my hands. For God did not give us a spirit of timidity, but a spirit of power, of love and of self-discipline. So do not be ashamed to testify about our Lord, or ashamed of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God who has saved us and caused, called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of his purpose and grace. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time, but it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Saviour, Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. And of this gospel, I was appointed a herald and an apostle and a teacher. That is why I am suffering as I am. Yet I am not ashamed, because I know whom I have believed, and am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him for that day. What you have heard from me, keep as the pattern of sound teaching with faith and loving Christ Jesus. Guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. You know that everyone in the province of Asia has deserted me, including Phygillus and Hermogenes. May the Lord show mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, because he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. On the contrary, when he was in Rome, he searched hard for me until he found me. May the Lord grant that he may find mercy from the Lord on that day. You know very well in how many ways he helped me in Ephesus. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning. Good to see you. Well, um, please do keep that reading open. We're going to be looking at um, 2 Timothy today, chapter 1. And so before we do, I'll pray. Father God, thank you that you love us. Thank you that you want the best for us in all things. 
for this life and for the next. And so we pray that we would hear your words to us this morning, that you'd work in us, that you'd change us, and that we'd leave this place with a clearer vision of you and a clearer vision of how we should live. And we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, about 10 years ago, I used to work for a company in the city, uh, and uh, one of the nice things about the particular place where I worked was that they used to give us a number of perks, uh, one of which was free gym membership at the quite fancy Virgin Active chain of gyms. The irony was they used to make us work quite long hours, and we often didn't get a lunch break, so it was actually hard to find time to get to the gym. The people in the office who always got to go to the gym were the secretaries, and that is because they were the only people with a contractually obligated lunch break. So they always got their hour, and you'd often see them running off to their spin classes and whatnot. Now, where I sat in the office was right near the kitchen, so you'd hear a lot of the chat that came out of the kitchen. And I remember hearing a couple of the secretaries talking one day, and one said to the, to the other, I'm thinking about doing a marathon. I'm thinking about doing the Paris Marathon. And the other said, no, no, no. You do not want to do the Paris Marathon. No one comes out to support the Paris Marathon. You want to do New York. And I thought, well, that seems a bit strange. Um, so I Googled it, and it's true. Uh, the Paris Marathon is well known for the lack of crowd support. And particularly near the end of the race, there's this public park called the Bois de Boulogne. Uh, and there are long stretches with literally no supporters whatsoever. Um, as a side note, the Paris Marathon, um, the food stations have wine, beer, cider, and oysters. Uh, so if you make it to the end of the marathon at all, you're doing well. New York, on the other hand, nearly two million spectators come out to watch the New York Marathon. That is like twice the population of Birmingham, just upping sticks coming out to watch the nearly 50,000 runners run the 26 miles of the race. Well, I imagine it comes to no, as no surprise uh, to any of us that the Americans would be the most enthusiastic when it comes to uh, supporting a marathon. And I imagine that it comes as no surprise to any of us that it would be the French who would be the least enthusiastic when it comes to supporting a marathon. No offense, Michelle. And a marathon is never going to be easy, um, whether you know, it's in Paris or in New York. But, and I'm never planning to do a marathon. It's not my gift. Um, but for those who have done marathons, people tell me that it's, it's at those moments where you really want to give up, where the pain is really hitting in, that's where you need the crowd support. That is where the people along the side shouting your name and cheering and saying, keep going, is what you need to keep you going through that race. And so if you had a straight choice, if you could run the New York Marathon or you could run the Paris Marathon, why would you choose to run Paris if you could run New York? Well, as I said, we're in the first of a, a three-week series in 2 Timothy today. We're going to be doing the first half of the book in the next three weeks. And it's the last letter of the Apostle Paul. He writes it from jail, and he writes it from jail waiting to be executed. He is literally on death row, waiting to be executed for the supposed crime of preaching the Christian message. If you've got your Bibles, flick over with me to chapter 4, and we see there Paul writes this. He says, for I am already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time has come for my departure. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. It is the end for Paul. He will die soon. And the apostle Peter will die soon. 
and the Apostle John will die soon. As Paul writes, they are coming to the end of the apostolic era. They are coming to the end of the time when those who witnessed Jesus' life were there to guide the church in its young years. Those who saw Jesus' teaching, who marveled at his miracles, who saw the crowds who came out to see him. Those who saw Jesus arrested and tried and mocked and beaten and killed. And those who saw him rise again. Those who saw him walk uh, again in the garden who saw him on the road to Emmaus, who saw him on the beach at Galilee, who saw him in the upper room and on the mount at Bethany, who spoke to him again, who touched him again, who ate with him again. But soon they will all be dead. And Paul, who also saw Jesus on the road to Emmaus, they will soon, he, will, he will soon die as well. What will happen? Paul has done the work that he was given to do. What will happen when he's gone? Well, he needs someone to take his place. And that man is Timothy, to whom he writes. Uh, As far as we know, Timothy was converted through Paul's ministry. Acts 14 indicates that. And in Acts 16, verses 2 and 3, we see that Timothy is handpicked by Paul to go with him on his missionary travels. In fact, Timothy pops up a number of times in Paul's New Testament letters. Uh, He's mentioned in Romans, 1 Corinthians, 1 Thessalonians, and Philippians. In Philippians, Paul says this, I have no one like him. So Timothy is a significant man. He's a big deal in the early church. And when Paul wrote his first letter to Timothy, Timothy at that time, Paul had left him in charge of the church in Ephesus. And Ephesus was a dark place, steeped in witchcraft and spiritualism, devoted to idol worship, money and pleasure. It was a hard place to be a pastor. The Christians stood out a mile. And the focus in this second letter that Paul writes to Timothy is that to stand as a Christian, to run as a Christian in this life, will be difficult. The Christian race is a lot more like Paris than it is like New York. It's a tough race. For those of us who choose to faithfully follow Christ, life will rarely see us surrounded by supporters cheering us on in our race, and will often see us surrounded by people who want us to fail, people who want us to give up, people who want us not to reach the finishing line. The Christian race is much more like Paris than New York. Paul would die for his faith in Christ. And thousands around the world still do die, even today. The estimates vary. Some put it in the tens of thousands. Um, Open Doors, which is a Christian charity that I support, they're, they're very conservative, very careful in their estimates. But even they reckon that in 2016, 7,100 Christians died for their faith, died for their witness. And even that supposedly low figure, I mean, that's crazy, isn't it? That's 600 almost every month. That is 136 Christians every week killed for their faith. 19 every day, two every three hours. If that statistic carries on into 2017, then between the time I arrived this morning at about nine o'clock, by the time I've left, at least two Christians will have been killed somewhere for their faith. We must remember to hold them in prayer. Thanks be to God, we don't face anything like that in the UK, but it is still not easy to be a faithful Christian. In most workplaces, whether it's an office or a school or a hospital or a factory, And also in many families, to stand up and say you are a Christian will at least invite mockery, 
and often invite hatred. And that can leave us tempted to be ashamed of the Christian message, ashamed to be known as one who trusts Jesus. People sometimes describe Christianity as a crutch for weak people, but actually it takes great strength to stand for Christ in this world. And it wasn't so different for Timothy in his day. We shouldn't think that our culture is unique. Uh, We see in chapter 1 that many of those who had been close friends of him and Paul have given up on the faith. So chapter 1, verse 15, we saw, you know, Paul writes, you know that everyone in the province of Asia has deserted me. That is those within the church, including Phygelus and Hermogenes. Paul names those because Timothy would have known them. So it's not some guy over there that some guy, some guy, some guy. These are people that Timothy knew giving up on the faith. The Jewish leaders who had unfairly tried and arrested uh, and killed Jesus, they're now trying to destroy the church. And state persecution was continuing to increase, so it's likely that Paul was killed under the Emperor Nero. He'd have been beheaded as a Roman citizen, and many other Christians who were killed who weren't Roman citizens were less fortunate. They were torn to pieces by wild beasts, killed by gladiators, or burnt alive in Nero's gardens. And so you can see that Timothy would have had every reason to want to keep his head down. As the leader of a church, he would have been a prime target. He would have had reason to want to be ashamed of the gospel, ashamed of the message about Christ. And so Paul writes to Timothy, he says, look, forget the popularity Forget the praise. Forget the easy race. I'm calling you to run the hard race. Run the Christian race instead. Read with me verse 8. Paul writes, Do not be ashamed to testify about our Lord or ashamed of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel of God. Now, some of you may have suffered much for being Christians. Some may not. Uh, I think of some people that I know. Uh, I think of Ziggy, uh, converted out of a Jewish background. Uh, His parents cut him out of the will, and they didn't speak to him for six years after he was converted. I think of Anwar, who was converted out of a Muslim background. His father sent hitmen to kill him because he had converted. I think of Anna Louise, converted out of a secular British background. Her parents will invite their friends around for a dinner party, and they will mock her for her Christian faith in front of their friends at the dinner table. Some of you may have suffered in that way. Most of us won't, and we can be very grateful for that. But as the tide of our culture changes increasingly against Christianity, as most of us will have been able to see over the last 10, 20, 30, or more years, it looks at the moment almost without doubt that things will get harder for Christians as we go forward. And so we need to hear these words too. Don't be ashamed of the gospel. Don't be ashamed to testify about our Lord, but join in suffering. Now, if you're preparing a sales pitch for a new religion, this doesn't seem like a good angle to take, does it? Share in suffering. Come on, join us. Share in suffering. But that's what Paul says. And so we want to ask ourselves then, why? Why bother? Why would you voluntarily make your life more difficult? Why would you choose to run a harder race instead of an easy one? Why make your life more difficult? Well, ask any sportsman. 
during the last Olympics. They did one of those little kind of documentaries, and the BBC sent some reporters out uh, to, to where the Olympic rowers were training. 5 a.m. every morning, February, cold, dark, morning after morning, going out to train. And one of the mornings, the reporter put his microphone through the, the, the window of, of a car of one of the rowers who was getting in his car to then drive on to, to his office to go and do his job after having done however many hours of training first. And he said, look, why on earth do you do this? And quick as a flash, the rower replied, the podium, the podium, the glory, the prize, the finishing line. Why do the runners in the Paris Marathon keep on going when their lungs are burning and their legs are screaming and they're struggling on through the Bois de Boulogne with no one to support them? The podium, the prize, the finishing line. Paul is asking Timothy, and by extension us, to sacrifice glory. He is asking us to suffer, but only for a short time, only for this life. Because when the race is over, if we make it to the end, we will receive the prize. What is this prize? What prize does Paul offer Timothy? What incentive could be worth this race? Well, you might not even have noticed it there. Verse 1, Paul says it straight away. Chapter 1, verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, according to the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus by which he means eternal life, heaven, real, physical, satisfying, eternal life with God, perfect joy forever. And Paul goes on to give us more detail in verses 9 and 10. He says in verse 8, join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, verse 9, who has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time, but it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Who saved us, not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. I wonder if you've ever considered, you would never invent the Christian message. You'd never invent the gospel. You see, if you were to listen to our culture, we'd probably conclude God is a pretty kind of easygoing sort of guy. You know, we may not have been perfect, but we're basically good, and God will overlook our minor discrepancies. You know, we'll get to heaven, and we'll have a beer with God, and we'll laugh about all the things that we did. Or if we were to listen to any other religion except for Christianity, then we'd conclude that spiritual progress, salvation, comes through exerting enough of the right kind of religious effort. That's what Islam teaches. Obey the five pillars. That's what Hinduism teaches. Make your offerings at the temple, follow the right religious ceremonies. <coughs> it's what Buddhism teaches. Pursue the Eightfold Path. And it's what every adaptation, every corruption of Christianity teaches. The Mormons, the Jehovah's Witnesses, and many more. And that is because every other religion, every other belief system is based not on God's revelation, but on man's invention. And so every other religion is based on merit. Every other religion is based on works, based on earning 
God's approval. Only Christianity proclaims grace. But also Christianity is is so rude about us. Christianity says that we are sinful from birth. Christianity says there is no good in us naturally. And then it paints a picture of God who is so holy, so terrifying, that we can't stand in his presence or see his face and live. A God before whom the best of our deeds are like bloodstained rags, and yet because he loves us, sent his son to die on a cross in our place. Pure grace. Not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace. This grace was given to us in Christ Jesus. Every human philosophy, every human religion says, earn it, earn your way in. God says, you are so bad. There is no hope of you earning it. God is perfectly righteous. He cannot tolerate any sin. But God says, even though you deserve hell and judgment, I will save you anyway. Through the death of my beloved son on a cross, in your place so that you might be free and clean and pure forever. You'd never imagine that. You'd never invent that gospel. It's not a reasonable gospel. It's mad. We are more sinful than we ever imagined, but more loved than we ever dreamed. I've been reading this book on and off for a little while now. Um, It's called A Brief History of Thought. It's about philosophy. I haven't finished it yet, but I did skip to the end. Uh, And it's by a guy called uh, Luc Ferry. I say that because uh, he's French, probably hasn't run any marathons, um, but uh, he's an interesting guy. Uh, He is a humanistic atheist philosopher. And the title sort of gives it away, A Brief History of Thought. He's thinking through all the major philosophical uh, and religious worldviews. And he goes through them, all the big ones, all the ones you've heard of, and then explains his own views, his own humanistic atheism. And then he says, I grant you that amongst the available doctrines of salvation, nothing can compete with Christianity. Not a Christian himself. But looking across what the world has to offer, he says, I grant you, nothing can compete with the offer of Christianity. But he doesn't believe it. He doesn't think it's true. But it is true. And it's not a pipe dream. It's not pie in the sky when you die. It's historical reality. It's truth based on the life and death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus who walked our streets who did his miracles in full view, who died and rose and was seen again. Nothing can compete with the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus. If there was no promise, if there was no prize, then a call to suffer would be crazy. It would be madness and we'd be right to walk away from it. But we can suffer. We can keep on because there is a prize ahead. The Christian race is worth it. Even when it seems tough, keep going. I'm going to finish with a a quote from a guy called Gary Miller. He's an Irishman leading a theological college in Australia. So he's got a great accent. I can't do his accent. You'll have to put up with mine. It's quite a long quote, but it's great. This is Gary Miller. He says, The longer I follow Jesus, 
the more I become convinced that the greatest achievement in life is simply to keep going, to keep going with Jesus right to the end. He says, now, if I were to pass pass a microphone around all of our students in the Bible college, the average age is 28. He says, I can almost guarantee that nobody under 40 would say, in answer to the question, what is your great goal in life? None of them would say, keep going. The older guys, some of the retired guys who come to study with us for a year after they finish work, I think that's what they'd nearly all say, to keep going to the end, to keep following Jesus faithfully and finish well. There's no higher goal. That's aiming high. To be able to say, like Paul in 2 Timothy 4, the time for my departure is near. I fought the good fight. I finished the race. I've kept the faith. Gary comments, I think that used to puzzle me when I was younger. I thought, come on, Paul, you've done loads more than that. Now I'm saying, go, Paul. Lord, give me the grace to follow in his steps. For there is in store the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award on that day to all who have longed for his appearing. Finishing well is hugely underrated, and it's harder than it looks, but it's something really worth aiming for. Let's pray that that is what we would do. Lord, your servant, our dear brother, older brother, the Apostle Paul, he wrote at the end of his life, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness. Lord, we pray, give us the grace to follow in his steps, that we might walk with you that we might run this race every day of our lives and keep going to the end. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.